Jonah is an interesting character uh, to, to, man, to, to be in the Bible. Well, there are a lot of interesting characters in the Bible anyway, right? I mean, they're just some folks that you think, really, God, when you were writing your book, you could have just left these folks out. And, or, I mean, you could have just said, don't do this, instead of, you know, this is what happens when you do. I guess he knew we were uh, dumb and had to have that negative example sometimes. To, to see, oh, oh, that's what happens if I don't listen to you. All right. Well, Jonah's one of those guys. He's, he's clearly, as we're going to see tonight, because we're, we're, we're really just going to introduce Jonah tonight. He's clearly a man of God. I, when, when you begin the, the, the book with uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that wasn't like he got uh, a form letter in the mail or something. I mean, this is God speaking directly to him. He was one of God's prophets. And yet you wonder how in the world could he have just fouled it up so royally. Jonah is not an allegory. We're going to talk about that here in a couple of minutes. It's not an allegory. It's not a parable. It's an actual historical event. But there are so many parallels we can find with Jonah, between Jonah and the church today. And that is the title of this series uh, that, that gets us to the title uh, of this series, Jonah and the All About Me Church. Because really that gets to the heart of where Israel was at this time. And, and, and probably the, the main reason at least right up there with the reasons why Jonah was sent to Nineveh <clears throat> excuse me, in the first place. Clearly, God wanted to save some people, and that's why he sent Jonah. But he was also pointing out to Israel some of their own issues. And those issues that Israel had at this time were our own issues. Beginning next week, we'll have, uh, I'll have the... The, the screen's up for you, the, the PowerPoint slides. I may have something in your hand as we work through this. There's not going to be a set passage every night, every Sunday night. I mean, we're, it's, it's going to be kind of like we, we start and, uh, you know, about quarter till, ten till, well, we'll stop where we are and we'll pick it up again next week. That's the way we're going to go through it. That's why I say it's more of a, a Bible study uh, feel to it. I would never do that on Sunday morning. I, I plan when we're going to start and when we're going to end on Sunday morning. And the ending may be later than y'all like, but at least I know, you know, I was getting somewhere. Uh, with As we work through this book, uh, we'll spend more time on a, a verse here uh, as opposed to four or five verses there. We're just going to dig our way through this and see what God has to say to us from it. But one of the first things we want to do is we really just need to introduce Jonah in this book. Uh, Jonah is actually one of the best written books in the Old Testament. Now, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, we believe, I believe, in verbal plenary inspiration. That What that means is that every word... Uh, from beginning to end, uh, is inspired. That, that's what we believe. But we don't believe, or at least I don't believe, and, and I'm going to argue with you if you do believe, that the, the writers of the books of the Bible were in some sort of trance, didn't really know what they were doing. They were, uh, I kind of envision the old uh, 
uh, when, I, when I see war movies and they've got the, the machine, the decoder machine or something, it just starts going by itself. <laughs> you know, nobody's typing or anything. It's just printing stuff out. That, that's kind of what I, I have in mind. Some people think happened with the authors of the Bible. And that's not what it is. Their personalities come through. Their, their ways, uh, their, their uh, modes of speech, their, their phrases that they use, they all come through. And in the New Testament, probably the, the best Greek of the New Testament is found in Hebrews. And then you've got other books, and I believe it's uh, Second Peter, if I'm not mistaken. It's just horrible Greek. It's like a, a third grader, third grader in Greek from Greece wrote this. I mean, it's just it's just really, really bad Greek, and and that's okay because you know grammatical mistakes don't uh, create errors in, in our scripture. They just portray and, and and give us the the feel of the author who gave us who, who wrote us that book. Jonah is one of the best Old Testament books. It's it's intricate. Uh, a lot of a lot of what it's uh, the way it's written has led some scholars to say, well, there's just you know, there's no way this was just one prophet. I mean, that it had to have been written by much later, and the story put together and crafted. And, and, and well, we're going to talk about that, and I would uh, I would disagree with them. But still, one of the best written books of the Old Te- Testament. And what do we know about Jonah? What do we immediately associate with Jonah? The fish, the whale. Three verses out of the whole thing. Then we never heard hear from this, uh, this salmon again. I mean, that, that just one time, swallowed him, spit him out, and that's all we hear. And yet, that's what... It, I mean, it should be Jonah and the Ninevites. It should be Jonah and God. But we like the... The fun part of the story where he gets swallowed but not digested, and we call it Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the the fish, maybe more accurately. Incredibly minor part, though. Anytime we look at a book of the Bible, especially, and that's why tonight we're spending it on the introduction, and some of y'all are going to say, well, he's not preaching the Bible to us. Well, we're getting there. Uh, if, If we were on a Sunday morning and I were beginning this study... I would spend less time on the introduction and get to the, the meat of those first three verses. Well, tonight, because I'm, I'm going to be a little freer with it, we're going to spend a little more time on the introduction, and we're going to introduce those first three verses, but we're not going to get to meet, the meat of them first, or get to the meat of them until next week. The author, we don't know who the author is. Let's just start there. He doesn't, the book doesn't begin with and so Jonah wrote, or as uh, many of our New Testament epistles begin uh, f- to the churches in, in, in Ephesus or Thessalonica from Paul. You know, we clearly know that these letters were written by uh, Paul or Peter, James or John or whatever. It, Jonah, the book, is actually anonymous. But we do know things about Jonah. And we can, we can assume, maybe, and I probably will as I go through, I'll just refer to the author as Jonah just because it's easier. Do you know anybody that would write such a scathing autobiography of themselves? Generally, no. I, I mean, I might put a couple of bad things that I did just so you know I'm human. But I'm not going to put I mean, the actual 
uh, uh, worst point spiritually in my life. And I'm not talking about where I was just, you know, desperate and wondering, does God even exist? But my biggest rebellion, uh, my dumbest act as a prophet, I, I might not. Then again, I might, you know, look at the things other prophets had to do in order to get God's message across. So it's, it's completely conceivable that Jonah is the author. But what we do know about Jonah, whether he was the author or not, is that Second uh, Kings chapter 14, verse 25, if you want to go back and read that someday, tells us all about this guy named, well, all about, mentions this guy named Jonah of Amittai, son of Amittai. Uh, we find out that his, that was his dad's name. Uh, they, they created a number of different uh, legends ar- around him. Uh, I didn't know if that was me bouncing something or what. Uh, a number of different legends around him about who he was, and eh, none of those really hold much water. But we do know, according to Second to, uh, Kings, he was the son of Amittai. He was from a town called Gath-Hefer. And that's not like heifer, like I have a daughter who's a heifer. Uh, it's a different, com- complete uh, heifer. Y'all can laugh at that. That is funny that I call my daughter. I do. She answers to it, just in case you didn't know. If you ever hear me calling Janie Marie, say, hey, come here, heifer. She, she comes. It's just, it's just, it's a uh, it's term of endearment from her daddy. Uh, his town was Gath Heifer in the, from the tribe of Zebulun, you know, one of the 12 tribes. Uh, of Israel, tribe of Zebulun, in Israel, in the northern kingdom. Now, remember that, you probably have heard this at some point, that at this time, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit, in the uh, late 700s B.C., there are two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. They split not long after Solomon. Uh, the, the prophecy, uh, particularly to David, uh, he uh, said there will be ten tribes that go against you. Two tribes will stick together. The kingdom will split, and that's what happened. You have uh, Israel in the north, which and their capital is Samaria. You have Judah in the south, and the capital is Jerusalem. That's where we are now, those two kingdoms. He is from the northern kingdom of Israel. He prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam the second. We know that from this passage in 2 Kings. 793 to 753 BC was Jeroboam the second's reign. So now we're kind of getting some, some uh, meat to who this guy Jonah was, where he lived, where he was from, what he did, uh, the, the time period, the things that were going on. Now you also need to remember, if, if you don't, that the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken by the Assyrians and done away with completely in 722 B.C. So just a few, what, I'm, I'm horrible at math, y'all will learn that uh, very quickly. Some 30 years after the reign of Jeroboam, 40 to 45 years thereabout, uh, after Jonah prophesied the, uh, to, to Nineveh, the northern kingdom is no more. Israel doesn't exist. And they are taken over by the Assyrians, Ninevites, Nineveh. So Jonah is going to go to what is historically an enemy of Israel, 
and then later on will be an enemy of Israel and is going to preach a message that allows Assyria to continue to exist so that 40 years later they can come and destroy his own country. Do do you see this picture now? Do you understand why not just that Jonah is such a train wreck in general, at least at this time in his life, but this this would be considered scripture? This prophet goes, does what God tells him to, and really that's the scandal, right? God sends a prophet to save Nineveh that 40, 45 years later is going to come back and destroy his own people. Well, the truth is, no long, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, had not been God's people for a long time. Their race didn't matter. Their def- devotion to and dependence on God was what made them God's people, and Israel had not been God's people for a long time. This was the judgment that was coming. And there are a lot of uh, themes and undertones here that we'll get to as we work through this later on. Uh, so Elijah, uh, not Elijah, Jonah prophesies in this time. He is a, a, a successor of Elisha. Elijah passed his mantle on to Elisha, and then just a, a couple of prophets down, we have Jonah. That's not the order necessarily in your Bible, but that's the time frame that Jonah prophesied. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the date already. It was during the reign of uh, King Jeroboam II, we can at best pinpoint when the, the, the story of Jonah occurred to 781 to 745 B.C. As, as late as 781, as early as 745, which is now only, do the math, 23 years from when uh, Assyria would come and destroy Israel. Think, think about it this way. We don't know how old Jonah was when he prophesied in Nineveh. But he very well could have been alive the day the Assyrians came and took over Israel. I mean, let, 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 let me for a second put myself in, in Jonah's shoes. Let's say that there was... Uh, I don't know, pick a country that, that we were ISIS or, or, or uh, some of the, the Middle Eastern countries that we don't have the best relationship with. I, I was told, hey, Michael, you need to go over there and preach the gospel to these people because I'm about to destroy them. I don't like those people, really, but okay. And I go and preach the gospel. And there's this, there's this mass conversion that lasts one generation. But it lasts just long enough that that country is enabled to gain strength again, grow in, in power again. And then some 20 years later, maybe the next generation comes and destroys our country. Uh, who's going to vote for me for the man of the year that year? That's Jonah. And we're going to see as, as we get through the, the, the book that he knew this. He didn't know that they were going to come and destroy Israel. But what he did know was that God was a forgiving God. God was a gracious God. 
God was one that if He said, I will destroy you if you don't repent, if you repent, He won't destroy you. Jonah knew that. That's why he didn't want to go to begin with. But I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But that puts us in this time frame, 781 to 745. It is a very weak Assyria right now. They've, they've had some powerful times already, but they are in a pretty steep decline at this moment. So much so that instead of a country of Assyria with one king, basically the big cities had their own king. Now they kind of all acknowledged the king in Nineveh because Nineveh was kind of the capital, but they pretty much did their own thing. And there are some phrases in the book that will tell us that, and, and we'll get there. So there's no true king in the country, a uh, bunch of city-states, this nominal king in Nineveh, and that's the country that Jonah was told to go and talk to, or the city that Jonah was told to go and talk to. Also, this is just interesting if you like astronomy, there was a, a solar eclipse in 763 B.C. Now, if you're talking about a superstitious people, or even not a superstitious people, uh, people who look to God to do things to get their attention, uh, you, you can see that with Israel, but Assyria, a very superstitious people, sun god, moon god, etc., etc., this eclipse happens, and then this guy shows up and says, hey, by the way, y'all, if you don't repent, you're going to all be destroyed. Um... Their attention was gotten at that point, and they were ready to listen. So all this is going on now um, that uh, while, while uh, Jonah was being called uh, to go there. So it, this is just good evidence that it was written um, in, in eighth, the 8th century, about the time Jonah did all this. So he could have written it, could have been some other folks telling the story. Well, as we get into Jonah, we need to know what we're re reading. When, when you read Scripture, you don't read uh, Revelation the same way you read uh, 1 Thessalonians. While Revelation is a letter, its genre is different. It's apocalyptic literature. It's, it's written for a totally different purpose than, say, Paul writing to tell the folks how to do church. So we, we read it differently. We, we, we don't go in there expecting that there will be a, a literal leopard at some point that rules a quarter of the world or something like that. We don't, we don't expect that from it. But we, we do take Paul at his word when he says to pray without ceasing and rejoice always. We, we, we realize, okay, yeah, that's, that is an attitude of prayer that I need to have, and that is a heart of joy that is constant with me all the time. See, see we read those things differently. We read Daniel differently than we read Genesis. We read the Gospels differently than we read the Psalms. So going into a book, understanding what why it was written and when it was written and who wrote it and the folks it's about all comes into play and also we need to understand the genre, its purpose, why they write it. Scholars tell us there are probably four different genres that Jonah could be. The first one, and this is when I wish I had the, the slide for you, uh, but that's, not, that's my fault, not anybody else's, um, is a midrash. That is a Hebrew word, midrash. It's not, it's not a rash you get in the middle, uh, but that's, those are the words, midrash. But they're not in it, all related to English language. A midrash is a commentary 
on a portion of Scripture that uses embellishments and legends and that kind of thing to, to prove a point. So we'd, we'd pull a portion of Scripture and, and some guy smart, smarter than me, would, would create this story uh, around this Scripture to, to, uh, to get its point across. The thing with Midrashes, though, is that uh, they didn't come into being until much later. Even, even, if you, uh, even scholars that say Jonah was written in like 200 B.C. or so, Midrash came, it would be like the earliest ever Midrash. So that doesn't really work. Um, also, Midrashes are known to be legends. They, they are intentionally a, a little out there, legendary figures, names, places, people. Well, they wouldn't have written a legend about God. That's kind of, you don't, you know, they, they, remember these are the folks that wouldn't even say his name, wouldn't say Yahweh. They would, they would substitute it with Elohim or if you're, you're you know, your Bible uh, has the all caps or the small caps L-O-R-D in the place of Yahweh. They wouldn't, when the, when the scribes would come to that name, Yahweh, uh, in the Old Testament as they were writing, before they wrote it, they'd went, go and, and, and take a bath and come back and write Yahweh. And then after they wrote it, they would go and take a bath. I mean, it was, it, and, and then come back and start writing again. It was incredibly powerful name. So they wouldn't attach God's name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. They wouldn't take God's name and make a midrash about God. It just wouldn't work. So, and, and really the main character of Jonah is, is God. Well, Right, Michael? Because the main character of the Bible is, is God. You see where we're going with it. So, unlikely to be a legend about God. Second thing it could be is an allegory. Uh, a story where everything in the story stands for something else in order to, to clarify. So, Jonah stands for this, and Nineveh stands for that, and the whale stands for this other, and so on and on and on. It's all allegory. The problem is... Jonah, the, the, the book, uses real people, real places, real events. It talks about things that are verifiable. Jonah existed. Nineveh existed. It's, it's description of Nineveh and, and, and Assyria at this time fits what we know. So allegory doesn't seem to really work. And besides that, it's not an easy correlation between this and that. There's, you know, depending on the scholar you ask, Jonah's a, a dove, or, because that's what his name means, is dove. Or, or he's Israel, or he's this, or, and, and he can't get any kind of agreement. And if that's what God were telling us, it, it, telling us that this is a story to, to, to explain something else, then he generally would be a little clearer about what, what he's doing, and he wasn't. Third possibility is that it's didactic fiction. Didactic means to teach. Uh, and then it's fiction, so it's a story to teach, or a parable, maybe. Think of the parables of Jesus. Son, prodigal son, for example. Give me my inheritance. Everybody understood what he's talking about, right? Had two sons. The younger one said, I want my inheritance so I can go out and do what I want to. And dad said, all right, here you go. There's your inheritance. Go on. He goes out, riotous living, whatever that meant. Loses everything. Squanders it. In a, a pigsty, eating the, the carob pods, would have just, just if, if my father would just make me one of his servants, he comes home. I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to go to him and say, just make me your servant. that will be fine. I don't deserve anything else. The father sees him, runs out to meet him, brings him in, has a party. The older son, I've never left you, and I'm not, I never got a party. And the dad says, I've had you here all this time. Everything 
that I've ha- I have is yours. But here this son that was lost has come home. Why can't we rejoice in that? See how short that was? We can quickly get the point. That's a parable. Not, I mean, we can, we can dissect it a little bit and we can talk about it and we can meditate on it. And, you know, good preacher can for a long, long time. But, uh, but for, for just pretty much it's just an easy, easy thing to understand. Jonah is not an easy thing to understand. There are a lot of different directions. There are a lot of different ways he's talking. Too complex, no simple truth. Uh, there are some great themes present, and I want to go over these with you, some things to look for, because what I'd like you to do, Jonah's only 48 verses long. I would love for y'all to read Jonah a couple of times this week, and just maybe read it every week. 48 verses, just as we go through. Now, like I said, we're going to go three verses here, one verse there, three or four verses next, so it's going, we're going to be a number of weeks on this, but by the time we get to it, you will hopefully understand and, and, and be able to know, okay, what is this all-about-me church that Jonah was apparently a member of? But there are six themes that, uh, that this di- idea of, of, of parable, didactic fiction, get across to us as we read Jonah. And they're, they're really good. They will, they're helpful for us to look at them. The first one is that is uh, God's sovereignty over the natural world. He made it. He can do whatever he wants to with it, right? That's one of the things we see in Jonah. God's sovereignty over the natural world. Second, we see his deliverance of those who call upon him in need. Romans tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's pretty nice, right? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who does that mean? Does that mean the people that look like us? No. Does that mean the people that that sound like us? Nope. Does that mean people with the same customs as us, the the same lifestyle as us? And don't, you know, I'm not getting into the political realm of lifestyle, and you know. But, but, but I am. Because it does not matter your lifestyle prior to Jesus as to whether you can call on him or not. Now, Jesus is going to change your lifestyle if you truly called on him. But from here to here to the calling, that is immaterial because your lifestyle may not be life, my lifestyle, but, but without Jesus, our death style, it's the same. We've got the same eternity regardless of what we're doing prior to Jesus. So, those kinds of things, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a theme here, that his deliverance, his deliverance of those who call upon him in need. Verse 3, his concern for all people. Peter tells us in, in one of his letters, when folks are kind of wondering, what's taken Jesus so long to come back? And Peter says, you know, he's not slow just because he's slow. It's not that he, he lost his watch, uh, his calendar. He had, he had coming back calendared for today, but he had a dentist appointment, and so he's going to have to put it off until, you know, ouch. You know, it's not, it's not that. It, it, he's not slow just because he's slow. He's slow in coming back because he wants all people to be saved. As Dr. Baker said this morning, his purpose is to, to save everybody. That, that's why he's not coming back. So the gospel can go to all these places. 
His concern is for all people. That's the third theme we see in Jonah. Number four, his freedom to alter his plans for judgment. We see this over and over and over in the Bible. We see it with Israel. We see it at the very beginning of, of, of the, the nation of Israel. Moses leading them out of the promised land, and they just blow it royally, right? Oh, hey, golden calf, let's worship it. Sounds good. Yay! I hate meat. I hate this, this quail. Let's go, if we could only go back to Egypt, there'd be so much better in Egypt. I'd rather, have, I'd rather have salt and pepper and be a slave than eat roasted quail with no salt. This is this ridiculous what God is that we're serving. You know, that's the kind of thing they're doing. And, and God says, you know what? I'm done, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make you and your family, you're my next nation. We're starting over. If Scratch, clean slate, it's you. And Moses says, you know what? If you wipe them out, take me with them because they're my people. God changed his mind. Did he really change his mind? Does God change? No, God doesn't change. But what we do know is that God, when God warns and people repent, God withholds judgment. So he has that freedom to alter his plans for judgment. That's the fourth theme. Fifth theme, his uniqueness as the one true God. We see from the, the guys on the boat, the sailors, they all prayed to their gods. Not much really happened, but when Jonah said, you know what? I worship the true God. He's the one doing this. Throw me over. Everything's fine. Nope, we'll figure out another way. I'm telling you guys, it ain't going to work. All right, go ahead. Now, throw me over. Everything whoop, works fine. Ninevites, they've got their own gods. They've got their own plans. But when the true, when the prophet of the true God shows up and they hear the message, it means something. Oh, my goodness. And we, they, they repent and things change. That is because, fifth theme, he is unique as the one true God. And then the sixth theme we'll see in Jonah is the appropriateness of thanksgiving, witness, and praise. We, we see thanksgiving even in the belly of the fish for Jonah. Just an unlikely place for a thanksgiving prayer, but that's where Jonah prays. We'll talk about that more as we get into it. Uh, the appropriateness of witness. There is no one that God does not want to save. There is no one that is so far from Jesus that they can't come and respond to the gospel. Therefore, there's no one that the church should not be reaching out to with the gospel. It is my plan, it is my prayer, it is my hope that every Sunday that I am pastor of this church, somebody walks through these doors that offends a lot of other people that are here. Because they don't look right, they don't smell right, and I know what they were doing last weekend, and so on and so forth. But those are the people who should be coming in. Those are the people we should be excited about coming in. When people who do, we don't expect to come to church, come to church, that's not the time to say, what are they doing here? It's the time to say, we are excited that they are here. I cannot believe that they are here. Isn't God amazing? That's what we want to see. So the appropriateness of witnessing and then the appropriateness of praise. Now, I think we kind of get the antithesis of that from Jonah. We don't see the praise, but we get the idea. We understand from this book, this, this, uh, this book that he was supposed to have praised. The end result of the turning of 120,000 people to God should have been Jonah falling on his knees and saying, have mercy, how did that happen? We serve an incredible God. And instead, he got ticked off 
matter about the fact his little leaf died, then 120,000 people were saved. I, I see lots of parallels to, to churches that, that we'll get into at some point, but hopefully you can see those with me. That sometimes we get more upset about the things that, that, that we lost rather than excited about the things that we gained by giving up those things. I, I, folks, I would give up air conditioning. Yep, I said it. I would give up air conditioning in church. Windows bolted, I don't care, if that would save people. If people would come to Christ, and I had to stand up here, and it'd be 110 degrees, and I would pour and sweat, and y'all made me wear a suit and tie. But if people came to Christ because, that, I would, because of that, I would count that as gain. Isn't that what Paul said? Every good thing I've gotten done in life, that I, I, that's my loss column, y'all, to, to the gain that I have in Jesus. Thanksgiving, witness, and praise. Did somebody call my name, or were you agreeing with me? It sounded like Michael, so I, you know, I'm getting old. My, my hearing is going up. So, <clears throat> so it's not uh, uh, didactic fiction. Some people will say, I spent a lot, a lot of time on didactic fiction there, but I wanted you to get those themes. Some people say, well, it's got to be fiction because look at all those miracles. Um, I, I, I hate to burst some bubbles, but if you're going to throw out those two pages because of the miracles, well, we're going to lose some more. And the whole Jesus thing. I mean, that's dead... Now alive, okay, so we go with the miracles. We trust that, as I said, God is sovereign over his creation. He can make fish not digest people if he wants to. He can, he can make them barf them up on the beach if, if that's what he chooses. He can make this plant grow in the desert that covers him up and just looks like a day or so. This little bitty worm that comes along and kills it and like that and the sun and the, all that stuff because I serve a God who can raise the dead, raise his own son who is both divine and human and and raise him from the dead. If I'm going to get hung up on miracles, well then, I'm not going to get past Jesus. So, we're not going to get hung up on miracles. We're going to say that God can do whatever he wants to because he's God. So, if those three things don't work, then Jonah is history. This is how it presents itself. Our fourth option here. It presents itself as history. These things happen to this guy who, who we know was around at this time in this country that we know about, in this city that we know about. And as he describes it, okay, kind of fits the time frame that he's talking about. So it is history. It's, it's been that view. It was historical for 2,700 years, uh, since all the way back to the, about the time it was written, ever since until about, you know, 100 years ago, really. People started saying, well, maybe Jonah's fake. No, maybe not. Maybe you're just dumb. And I'm going to go primarily with, you know, the guy we trust the most, Jesus. When he said things like, uh, in Matthew, when he said things like, uh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with just this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And you might say, well, maybe he's just, 
He, he's just kind of feeding them that, that, that legend that they'd all grown up with, right? See, see, you tell these stories about Jonah. Well, the, the, guy he, the, the people he told the story about, or that you tell the story about, they're going to rise up and they're going to condemn you all for the way you're acting. Maybe he was, but no, Jesus doesn't leave that option, does he? Because he goes on to say, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. See, nobody, nobody argues that the queen of the south came to see Solomon. But, so Jesus equates the two as fact and says, you know what, Jonah really happened. So that's our background. Somewhere in there I might have gone to preaching, and I guess that's okay. So if that's our background, and that's where we're going to start, then I want us, if you turn to Jonah, then open it up, I mean, look at it, and if you haven't, go ahead, because you're wondering where you're ever going to get to it. Well, we are, and we're going to get all the way to reading the first three verses, because you need to hear it. Because I'm afraid, I'm not afraid, uh, I'm certain that when you hear it, you'll understand why Jonah was a member of All About Me Church. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Jonah, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. We could stop there, and we're not, but God talked, right? Hey, Jonah! And Jonah knew it was God. Get up! Go! the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. So, we've got God speaking, obviously God speaking, talking to a guy who knew God's voice, knew that when God says do something, you do it. Giving a direct command to Jonah. And Jonah doesn't answer, not that we have recorded, at least not with words, he said, but verse 3 tells us, However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. I want you to hear three things that Jonah did here real quickly, and then we're going to stop. Jonah got up. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat and he left the Lord's presence. He was on a downward spiral and it kept happening. Later on, he's going to go down into the sea, down into the belly of the fish, down into the depths of Sheol in his Thanksgiving prayer that he's going to pray in chapter 2. I'm just going to let y'all think about that a little bit. Do we want to be a church that when God says go, we run the other way and we spiral out of control, out of his will, out of his presence, we think. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? But we think. Or are we going to take our lessons over the next few weeks from Jonah and say we will not be what Jonah represented? That's the question we're going to ask. So, we have an invitation. Here's my invitation. Now, I don't want to ever assume anybody 
that comes to church any time. I don't want to ever assume that everybody who comes to church is saved. So I will say this. If, if you, you know, this whole Bible talk, sure, whatever, all well and good. But if you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then, then that needs to be taken care of. Because woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. If I run from my responsibility like Jonah did. So tonight, if, if you don't even understand what a relationship with, with Jesus means, well, it means that you understand that you're a sinner. All is sin and fall short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans. But he went on to say that uh, the wages of those sins is death, our payment, what we're due, or what, what we owe, rather, and what's owed to us for our sin is, is, is death. But God, in His mercy, in His wisdom, in His infinite grace toward us, provided a gift in Jesus Christ our Lord, the free gift of salvation. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.13 says that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that, that one of those themes was that God wants everybody to repent, so much so that while I was a sinner, he died for me. Well, let's be honest, before I existed, he died for me. He knew what I would be, and he died for me anyway. Then he says in Romans 10, 13, All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is it. That is salvation. Y'all, if you want to know how to share the gospel with somebody, it's those five verses. As a matter of fact, you can cut it even shorter. If you just go with 6.23, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, you, you can tell them about their sin, is death. You can tell them the result of, 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 of their sin. But the gift, something I didn't earn, something that was given to me from God, of God, from my Creator to me, is eternal life. That's my answer to the sin problem. Eternal life. But how do I get it? Just because? No. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. A relationship with Him. Uh, uh, an intimate faithful knowledge with him. That is salvation. So if you don't have that, then I definitely want you to have that. But if everybody here is saved, and, I, and that's great if you are, then there's another invitation. What will God teach us as we go through this book of Jonah? And so I want you to pray about that tonight. Will he speak to us of revival because a revival happened in Nineveh? Will he preach to us? Will he speak to us of, of our obedience? Because we see the example of disobedience. But we also see the example of obedience. When we do what God tells us to, things happen that he says will happen. But then, but then, when people who don't look like us, don't think like us, don't smell like us, or whatever like us, Start coming to know Jesus. Start coming through our doors. Sit next to us. Sit in our seat. Will we rejoice? Or will we pout under a dying vine? So that's the invitation tonight. What will we be? What will we learn as God takes us through this book of Jonah? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you. As strange as it may seem to us that you would put these characters in the Bible and that you would, 
You know, you'd leave them there. You, you didn't take them out. But you would do that to speak to us. Lord, that you would do that as an example to us. To teach us. To mold us. To guide us. Thank you. That you used real people to teach real lessons to, to real people. Lord, I pray tonight that as we study this book, that you would speak to us, that we would be an all-about-everybody-else church, not, about an all, not an all-about-us church. But God, that our most important mission would be to see Ninevites saved, see Sulphurites saved, see Louisianans saved. Whatever 22 years holds down the road for us, Our purpose is to take the gospel to the lost. And I pray that we would be that church. And I pray that you would, among other things, use Jonah to teach us that over the next few weeks. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.